Well, good morning, church family. It's been great worshiping our, our God with you and uh, hearing his word. In um, his book, The Making of a Leader, Robert Clinton talks about a roadmap for six stages of leadership development. And I've got a picture here for you, uh, I believe, if we can get that up here, guys. Um, this, this is a book I read just a couple months ago for a, uh, one of my doctoral seminars. And to be honest with you, the, at first read, I found it kind of boring. I've been reading a lot of books on leadership, on Christian leadership. And um, it, was a, it was kind of like reading a book written by an engineer. And it turns out this guy is an engineer, or he was an engineer before he became a missionary and a, and a missions professor. And so he loves words like process. And, and so just the, the writing... Uh, I found to be pretty, pretty boring, all right? Um, but then I got, uh, I, I picked up an assignment to actually uh, do a, a 30-minute presentation of this book to this doctoral seminar uh, that I was going to be uh, attending, and I realized, okay, I need to read this again. And at second read, um, I, I, I was like, man, this is a helpful book. And you know what? I think I'll probably be reading it again in the future. And so what Dr. Clinton did was he took hundreds of leaders today uh, from across the spectrum, uh, who were Christians, some were pastors, some were just, just leaders in, 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 in the corporate world, some in the military. And he studied and he looked at their lives and he, he came up with a roadmap of leadership development based on this commonality. And so he, he, he had six stages of leadership development. And the first stage he calls sovereign foundations. And so that's God sovereignly laying out the foundations in a, in a person's life, sometimes a young person, sometimes older, for future leadership. And, and so phase two is what he calls inner life growth. And so that is growing in spiritual intimacy with God that is accompanied by some start of involvement with some kind of, some kind of ministry, okay? It might be a ministry in a church, um, but that's kind of the first opportunity to, to serve and, and lead a little bit. And it usually includes some kind of, of training for leadership. And so phase three is what he calls ministry maturing. And so that is now a phase where you move into pretty much full, some kind of full-time ministry or where ministry is a big part of your life. And you're learning and you're practicing your spiritual gifts through that full-on ministry. And, and during this phase, uh, you're learning more about your, your strengths and your weaknesses, and usually there's a, there's a, a desire for more training that kind of comes along, because you realize, hey, wait a minute, uh, this is a little bit harder than I thought it would be. Well, here's, here's the thing. During the first three phases, God is often working more in leaders, and during phase four through six, God is often working more through leaders. Now, Dr. Clinton notes quote, that many emerging leaders don't recognize this and become frustrated. They're constantly evaluating, evaluating productivity and, and activities while God is quietly evaluating their leadership potential. He wants to teach us that we minister out of what we are, and that, that would be our relationship with God, right? So Clinton actually notes the importance of, of ministering and leading out of being, that is being a disciple, a follower of Christ. And so then, then he talks about the last three stages. Phase four is what he calls life maturing. And so that's marked by spiritual maturity and ministry faithfulness and fruitfulness. 
And, and here in this stage, this fourth stage called life maturing, intimacy with God becomes more valued internally than outward success. That's a mark of maturity, that, that intimacy with God, that being is more important than actually what we see as outward success, but actually it often corresponds with more outward success. Phase five is what he calls convergence. That's the real sweet spot of ministry leadership, and many leaders never make it to this point, okay? Um, And then phase six is what he calls afterglow. Now, I mentioned that there was a break between the first three stages and the latter three, and in his research, Dr. Clinton found that often before leaders move into the latter three stages of ministry fruitfulness, they first experience a refining time of isolation, conflict, or crisis. And so he defines isolation. You can probably use your imagination to think about conflict. That would be often with other people in ministry uh, and, and crisis. Okay, it's not hard to imagine crisis. But what does he mean by isolation? And here's his definition of isolation. He says, he writes, one way that God forces a leader into reflective evaluation and into a being stage of the upward development pattern involves isolation. It is one of the most effective means for maturing a leader. Causes may include crisis, disciplinary action, providential circumstances, The thrust of the processing, there's that word he loves, the thrust of the processing is on the recognition that the isolation is God's work and that it is a call to deeper relationship and experience with God. Well, Genesis chapter 40 is about Joseph in prison in his time of isolation. As God in his wise providence prepares Joseph to move from his responsibility of leadership that he had in Potiphar's house to Pharaoh's court where he runs the empire of Egypt. Now, God was preparing him in prison for this great career move, but Joseph didn't know that, right? He just knew that he was in jail. Now, the the chapter begins with four words. If you look at it, the first four words of chapter 40, sometime after this. Now that's, this is a reference to his false accusation from Potiphar's wife that ended up affecting his being thrown into the slammer, okay? And so we don't know really how long at at this point Joseph has been in prison, okay? What we do know is that since he was taken captive, it's been 11 years at this point. Okay, 11 years that Joseph has, has either been a slave, even albeit a slave with great responsibility and privilege, or a prisoner in, in this dungeon, in this jail that he did, ended up kind of running, but he was still a prisoner there, all right? Um, 11 years. Well, how do we know that, that it was 11 years? Well, in chapter 37, we, we learn that, that Joseph was 17 years old when he was sold into slavery, Right? And we're going to see next week, chapter 41 tells us that Joseph was 30 years old when he was suddenly sprung from prison and promoted to running Egypt. And so that means 13 years total, he was either a slave or a 
prisoner. Now, chapter 41 tells us uh, in the first couple of verse, in the first verse, that, that Joseph had to wait two more years in prison for Pharaoh's cupbearer to remember him, right, from, from this point where he is now. So you do the math and you realize that Joseph right now is 28 years old in prison. So it, it could have been months that he was languishing in prison. Honestly, it could have been years. We don't know. It, it could have been a very long period of time since Potiphar had thrown him there. But we know it was a difficult time. It was, it was time in an uncomfortable place where he didn't want to be, where he was waiting on God. What was God doing in Joseph's life? Had he forgotten him? Well, actually, in this chapter, uh, it, it's easy for us, I think, to get uh, all focused and, and maybe distracted on these interesting dreams and interpretation and all that stuff. But actually, we see here evidence of what God had been doing in Joseph's life. And so our first point this morning is refinement. And, and uh, brothers, if y'all don't mind flashing the back screen with the front so I can see that you're, you're tracking here so that we can all kind of stay on one page. Uh, there we go. We, we see refinement, num- number one. Maybe go back, uh, go back one if you would, please. Okay, number one is um, refinement. We see evidence of what God had been doing in, in Joseph's life. God had been working in Joseph's life behind the scenes during his time in prison, sharpening and preparing him for leadership, for significant leadership. So look at verses one through four. And um, um, I think we'll have this on the screen here in a moment. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. So both of these positions, both the cupbearer and the baker, were actually very high trusted positions. Both of these men would have held Pharaoh's life in his hand, in their hands, because the, the, the royal cupbearer uh, by the Egyptians was actually called, the title was actually called pure of hands, because what he would do, he, he probably was an advisor. Uh, probably a, a, someone who decided wine pairings, that kind of thing. But he would actually take a sip before it got to Pharaoh to make sure it hadn't been poisoned. Okay, and so obviously, um, you know, maybe a hazardous job back in that day, but, but one in which the, the, the Pharaoh would have highly trusted his cupbearer, had a very intimate type relationship uh, with him, right? Uh, trusted him to tell him if he had COVID or not, right? Um, along, uh, amongst other things. Well, then the chief baker was responsible for Pharaoh's menu. So he was the head chef, so to speak. And that was a very big deal as well. Um, so we don't know what these guys did to offend Pharaoh. Um, it's possible he had gotten sick following a, a meal. Maybe he thought, that one of them had tried to poison him. Uh, maybe he didn't know who was to blame, so he threw them both in jail. We don't, we don't know for sure. Um, but they, it's very possible that they actually had the charge of treason hanging over their heads. And what we do know from our text is that they were given into Joseph's charge to care for them during their time in 
prison as they awaited their, their fates. And so verse 5 says, And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. So one, one scholar explains that the ancient Egyptians put great stock in dreams because they believed that sleep put them into contact with another world. And so this was a big deal, right? And we're going to see in a moment uh, that their dreams were vivid, and actually they did have real interpretations that affected their futures. And so they certainly would have conferred with each other and were distressed by these dreams and for the fact that they were not able to understand the meaning of those dreams. Now, what's important here is that we see evidence of God's maturing Joseph over his time in prison, as well as his time in Potiphar's home, by his response. And, and so the first thing that we see here, and I, I think we do have things working now with our slides, and, and also you'll find this in your, in your notes inside the bulletin here. But the first thing we see is intuition, right? We see intuition uh, in Joseph's response. So we read in verse 6 that when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. Now this is a demonstration of maturity from his insensitive, youthful attitude, if you remember, before his brothers, right? Jealous brothers. Uh, he had a special gift, and instead of keeping it in the closet, he was kind of going around peacocking in his coat of many colors, right? Which only inflamed his brothers' um, resentment, which actually led to uh, some action against Joseph, all within the providence of God. Um, but we see here a, 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 a connection with people, an intuition with, with how are people doing here. And it could have been, I mean, here he is in jail unjustly, uh, whether he's bringing them their breakfast, I don't know. He could have had the attitude, I'm just doing my job and ignoring these guys. But he cared for them as people. And these are people who are pagans, who did not know his God. And that he showed great care for them and noticed that they were troubled. And so we see compassion. That's in verse 7. We see compassion in Joseph's uh, response. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? He, he opened the door to understand and, and to try to help. He engaged in their pain with them. Now, let me just say that, that this is the fruit of suffering. You, you become more compassionate to others who are suffering, particularly if it's in a like manner. So for instance, if you've ever gone through a period of your life where you dealt with severe back pain, you, you're probably going to be more sensitive towards other people who hurt their back, right? You're probably going to go up to them and tell them all about your stretches and all the things that you do. You know, I know this, this great PT guy or this chiropractor. Um, because you know what it's like to walk around and just to be hurting all the time and how that can just change your life and immobilize you. And that the same is true for people who've, who've lost their spouse or, or been through a divorce when someone else is going through this pain. You, you, you are more willing to enter into their pain and try to, try to help. You become more sensitive because you know what it's like. And that's what we see here in, in Joseph's life. We see compassion. We also see boldness here that I, I find quite remarkable, actually, when you really stop and think about it. 
If you look at verse 8, then they said to him, we have had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. So Joseph could have just mocked them for their superstition. He could have um, ignored, ignored it, kind of shrugged. But instead, Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. I think we need to remember that Joseph had been alone for many years as the only God fear in Egypt. Can you imagine for years, for, can you imagine for, for 11 years having been the only Christian in a, in a, in a country? I mean, can you imagine that? Um, I, I, as we were singing this morning, you know, there's joy in the house of the Lord. I thought about Joseph. I mean, Joseph learned a lot during his time in Egypt. Joseph learned Egyptian language. Joseph would have learned to write hieroglyphics, okay, during Potiphar's house, his time in Potiphar's home, right? Very intricate, uh, ancient pictorial language. Uh, if he was managing the affairs of the place, buying, selling, uh, overseeing, um, um, he would have learned a lot about this culture. But I imagine Joseph in Hebrew singing from prison, there's joy in the house of the Lord. Um, or whatever. Can you imagine that? Just the worship. He was worshiping his God, uh, even though he was alone. He'd been alone all this time. And, and when you're alone, it'd be easy to kind of close up, right, and not say anything to anybody. I mean, who wants to be mocked? He's already, he's already been hurt uh, significantly by uh, but several times. But instead, we see here that he immediately and boldly used this opportunity to witness to these, these men of God's power. And it was a reflexive response. It showed that God was still at the center of his heart. You see, you can't give away to people what you don't have. So, so maybe, maybe you're convicted this morning, hey, I should be more bold at work or uh, with my neighbors when they bring things up that they're struggling with. It should just come out of my heart. You know, well, hey, let's pray to the one who can actually help you, right? Why am I not more bold like that? Well, maybe you need to start by thinking about God more because you can't give away what you don't have, what's not really there in your heart. So I would encourage you, a first step towards more bold and intentional evangelism would be to read the Bible every day and to talk with God, to commune with God so that it's reflexive. That's the, he's the first place where your, your heart goes and where your mind goes when you're interacting with people. One, one old scholar called Joseph's response here when he said, do not all interpretations belong to God? He called it an in-your-face polemic to the idolatrous culture of Egypt. Pastor Kent Hughes wrote, Joseph declared that the interpretation of dreams was not a pseudoscience of the specialists with their dream books. Because that, frankly, was what the Egyptians did. You had a dream. They had specialists you would go to who had these dream books, and they'd kind of look it all up and try to figure out what it meant, kind of, you know, decode it. Um, it's quite intricate, and these men didn't have that in prison. And so now Joseph is telling him, hey, you know what? All that's a bunch of rubbish. It's a gift that only God can give. The events of the future lay in Yahweh's power. And the only one who could interpret them was the one to whom he gave the interpretation, and that was to Joseph himself. So Joseph's intimate relationship of dependence on God is what fueled his boldness. 
Proverbs 28, 1 says that the wicked flee when no one pursues. In other words, the wicked are cowardly. But the righteous are as bold as a lion. We know as, as Christians that none of us in ourselves are righteous. But if you're in Christ, you are dressed in his righteousness. He has declared you righteous. He has made you righteous. He has separated you as righteous. If you have trusted in Jesus with all your heart, right? Despite your, your sin and shame, God has taken that away. That's not what he looks at. He has made you righteous. So you can be as bold as a line with people because who cares if somebody rejects you uh, at the end of the day? It, 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 hurt, it may hurt, but what matters is what, is what does my Lord think? So his relationship is what gave him his boldness and also it's what gave him his wisdom and his discernment. And so that's, that's our second point this morning. When we look at this story, we see discernment. We see discernment. We see that God's gift to Joseph of the interpretation of dreams was discernment. It came from God. And we're going to talk more about dreams next week. You may be interested to think a little more about that. Well, what does that mean today? Well, wait one more week. We'll talk about that next week as we, as we kind of look more at Joseph's interpretation of Pharaoh's dream. Okay, we will try to um, look at dreams and, 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 and talk about that. Does God give dreams today? Um, should we think too much about that? Uh, how does that relate to the Word of God? We'll, we'll look at that next week. But verse 9, let's look at Joseph's ability that God had given him to interpret the dreams of these two men, of this cupbearer and this baker. So verse 9 we read, so the chief cupbearer told his dreams to Joseph and said to him, in my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. So maybe think of like a time-lapse camera on a vineyard. Um, when we lived in Afghanistan, believe it or not, we actually had grapevines in our backyard, a little grape arbor, okay? And every spring, I'd go out there daily and kind of walk among it and, and, and watch as the, you know, the little clusters of grapes formed and watch them as they grew. And I was just so excited to try to, you know, uh, uh, taste them. It took maybe about, I think, about six weeks. Um, and unfortunately, they were always sour. My grapes were never any good. Um, but imagine like a camera on a cluster and boom, you know, within like 30 seconds, there it is. That was kind of like what the dream was like, okay? Um, all of a sudden, you see a vine and then the grapes come out. And so then he says that, that, that Pharaoh's cup was in my hand in his dream. And I took the grapes and I pressed them into Pharaoh's cups and I placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. That was his, his dream. Then we read, then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. Now here in this culture, lifting up your head meant a restoration of dignity and position. Okay? So he says, hey, in, in three, this is good news. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Now, I can't help but, but notice how confident and authoritative Joseph is in his interpretation, right? I mean, in a sense, he's sticking his neck out because what if he gets it wrong? But he's, he's, there's no like equivocating 
Um, there's no, you know, uh, mirrors, you know, or smoke. He's just very direct, very straightforward. This is what it means, and here's what's going to happen. And he believes it will. So we read in verse 16 that, that when, the, when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, because he had been holding back, and that's kind of interesting to me, but when he realizes that the, that the cupbearer got a, got a good interpretation for his dream, he says, hey, I have a dream also. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. Evidently, the Egyptians had something like somewhere around 50 words, believe it or not, to um, uh, signify different kinds of cakes and pastries that could be made. All right, so that was a big deal, right? If you had, if you had the resources, there was the bread basket uh, for, for, for much of the world, and they baked a lot of different kinds of pastries and cakes. And so here he has this, this three levels of baskets on his head. And the top level, there's all these, you know, delicacies, all these cakes for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. Now, if you think about it, if you're thinking about a dream, that might be kind of troubling. That might be a little bit negative. The birds are eating the, the things that were intended for, for Pharaoh here. But could you decipher the differences accurately between those dreams? I, I couldn't. Joseph here demonstrates discernment and wisdom of what God is doing. And it actually appears to me that Joseph may have discerned the baker's guilt against Pharaoh by the way he interprets the dream. He's very direct. Okay? God may have given him a revelation that this is the man. Okay, he did try to do something against Pharaoh. He's guilty. So here's, jo- here's Joseph's answer. He says, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. You can, okay, the baker's saying, all right. In three days, we'll lift up your head. So far, so good. From you. And hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Not so good. Um, gruesome. Now, notice how precisely Joseph's interpretation and his prophecies came true. There was, like I said, nothing vague about it. This wasn't like a a fortune teller at a fair, right, Um, who's kind of giving you all kinds of general things, playing with people's hopes, right, kind of feeding off their responses. He just says it how it is, and it's direct, and it's exactly what happens. Look at verse 20. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Now, how could Joseph have had this gift of interpreting dreams with such clear accuracy. Well, as we're going to see next week, as as Pharaoh later expresses, the Spirit of God was in Joseph, and he chose to give him this gift of discernment and wisdom. And while we may not have that same kind of gift to be able to interpret dreams in that way, this, 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 this principle is true for us as well, and that is Proverbs 9, 10 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. 
So do you fear God? Do you start there? With, with whatever your specialty in life, whenever you're faced with decisions, do you start with a respect for God, the fear of the Lord? What, what has God said about this? What is the foundation? Well, let's finally look at disappointment in this story of Joseph's life. We've looked at what God has done uh, in his heart, um, how God had refined Joseph. Um, we've looked at, at um, uh, how God had granted him this gift of discernment that we see in this ability to, to interpret dreams. But let's talk about disappointment. I think this is actually the main takeaway for us from this actual story here. Disappointment. And that is this. Joseph was forgotten by people, but not by God. Remember now, 11 years that Joseph, since Joseph had been sold as a slave. No communication with his family back home. He did not have any clue uh, as to whether they knew whether he was alive or not. And, and they didn't know. No, no comms. No, no, no passport. No rights. Nobody was out there seeking justice for him. He had nowhere to go to appeal for justice. He was the only follower of the true God. Talk about uh, uh, feeling forgotten, right? It would have been very easy for Joseph to wonder if God himself had forgotten him. Well, you know, God may have you in a metaphorical pit right now. You know, that, that theme of pit uh, is interesting. In, in Genesis chapter 37, we, we read that his brothers threw him in a literal pit. And, and here in, in, in our chapter, Joseph refers to the, 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 the jail, the prison or the dungeon where he's living as a pit. Maybe it wasn't a physical pit. Maybe it kind of was. Uh, but for him, at least, it was a metaphorical pit. Well, maybe right now you find yourself in a pit. And if that's the case, it's not wrong to try to climb out. Joseph tried. This was his attempt. Look at verse 14. He, he actually told the royal cupbearer in verse 14, only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so to get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here I have done nothing also that they should put me into the pit. Now, can you imagine this, this dream, interpreting this cupbearer's dream? I'm imagining if I was Joseph, um, there, there's a good interpretation for this guy, a bad one for this guy. I still got three days to take care of these guys. I'm probably going to hang out with the cupbearer a little bit more, okay? Um, and, and so he turns his attention and says, please remember me. Do me, a, do me a solid. Get me out of here. You're going to be in a position of, of great influence. Get me out of here. And, and you know, can you imagine that the hope that would have been present in Joseph's life after all this time? Here's my shot. He's going to put in a word for me. Finally, somebody to care about my case. And you can just imagine after three days as the, as the cupbearer is being, being released and, and being led out of, of jail, you can imagine Joseph's final words to him. You know, maybe, maybe God be with you. Don't forget me. And you can imagine the cupbearer saying, no way, I could never forget you, Joseph. And yet in verse 23 we read, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Now I wonder how long it took Joseph to realize. He forgot me. You can imagine the, the hours maybe for a day or two, just great hope. 
This is looking out through the, through the prison windows. And as the days went on, Joseph came to terms with the reality that he had indeed been forgotten. And we read in Genesis 41.1, after two whole years. It doesn't just say two years went by. It says after two whole years. That's a, that's a lot of days. That's a lot of hours to be waiting with no real reason, tangibly, to have hope. Have you ever had your hopes dashed? Most of us probably have. Have you ever wondered if God has forgotten about you as you wait for who knows how long? Well, God knows how long. And you know what? You're not alone in your waiting. Pastor Kent Hughes writes, The experience of delay is written large in the lives of God's greats. Abraham's long wait for a son. Moses' 40 years of preparation in the desert. David's anointing as a boy, and then the long years of delay in the fields of Judea. And then the flight from Saul and hiding in the cave in Adullam. There's a missionary great named Hudson Taylor, who's, who's famous for several things. Uh, for one, his humility, his cultural humility. Back in that day, most missionaries uh, uh, dressed very um, Western and lived on compounds. And if you wanted to kind of come and get teaching or whatever, you had to become European, right? Well, Hudson Taylor actually took on the clothing of the Chinese, including a shaved forehead and a ponytail, and wore their clothes to try to eliminate the barriers that existed. He, he was known for his passionate evangelism, but he also had been through medical training and, and cared for all kinds of, of, of bodies uh, uh, medically, okay, in, in China. He's known for his, his perseverance of 50-something years serving on the field. But you know, after his very first six years in ministry, he was sidelined. He, he got really sick, and he, he had to come back, and he spent five years uh, living in London's poor East End. Back, back, back then, it was just, London was a, a city uh, where everybody burned coal with a lot of people, so London's East End was just, a, just kind of a blackened city of, just full of, of, of soot. And that's where Hudson Taylor sat, uh, lived for five years as he waited on God. And, and he did eventually return to China where he served for 51 years and he formed the China Inland Mission. They ended up recruiting over 800 missionaries, starting hundreds of schools and seeing thousands of conversions. But, but Taylor wrote about his time of waiting as a, as a young man feeling sidelined. He wrote, yet without those hidden years, with all their growth and testing, how could the vision and enthusiasm of youth have been matured for the leadership that was to be? Other, other missionaries, like Amy Carmichael, she went through a 20-year period of ministry isolation, where she was waiting on God, sidelined, and yet the Lord used that as preparation to use her to accomplish mighty things and to inspire many others to follow. Well, well waiting is hard, and it, it doesn't mesh well with our culture. We, we like immediate test results and fast food, right? We want to see you know, immediate results. Well, God often doesn't operate on our time scale, but His way is greater. 
And if you're waiting on him right now, he's, 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 he, he may not be doing a work that you can yet see, and yet he's doing a work. James writes in, in chapter 1, verse 2, this is right what he's getting to, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. A.W. Tozer wrote, to the child of God, there is no such thing as an accident. He travels an appointed way. Accidents may indeed appear to befall him and misfortune stalk his way, but these evils will be so in appearance only and will seem evils only because we cannot read the secret script of God's hidden providence. So brother, sister, maybe right now you are waiting on God. Maybe you're in a state of discomfort. And if that's you, realize that God means for you to be where you are. He is sovereign. His hand of providence has a plan. And if you are waiting on him to deliver you from suffering, or even just to show you what he wants you to do when you grow up, and I say that metaphorically, be assured that God loves you if you're his child. He's with you, and he has a purpose that he hasn't yet revealed to you. So if you're in that pit right now, metaphorically, it's not wrong to try to climb out of it, right? It's not wrong to go get medical help or vocational help, but don't miss the lessons that God has for you to learn right now in that time of waiting, in that pit. What is God teaching you as you wait on him? I I hope he's teaching you to seek him first, that's something Jesus said in, in, in relation to anxiety about the future and, and God's plan and provision. Jesus said, therefore, don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? And maybe we don't worry too much about those things, maybe a little bit more with inflation. But that was a real concern for folks living in first century Palestine. How, where is the food going to come from for tomorrow's meal? Right? In, a, in a place where, where, where the, the equivalent of, of money for, like a, for a set of clothing would be like for a car today, uh, having a second shirt to wear was a big deal, a real concern. How in the world could I, you know, where am I going to get the tunic I need to be able to attend a wedding, which I have to go to? That was a big deal, a big concern. Jesus said, don't worry about these things. The Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That's something that that you could do whether you're sitting behind a big desk somewhere or whether you're sitting in a prison. You can seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And as you wait, be sure to ask God the question, what do you want me to learn from in my trial? Instead of just Get me out of it, Lord. What, what do you want me to learn right here that, that you may use later for your glory and for the good of others? You see, governing Egypt would not be easy. Sometimes I think we forget uh, that the same temptations 
And the same cutthroat characters that had surrounded Joseph in Potiphar's house, they would surround him in Pharaoh's court for the years that he had to govern Egypt. That would not be an easy task. It wasn't just the happy ending. Okay. God knew that Joseph needed to be ready for that great task with great integrity and intuition and compassion and wisdom and fortitude and courage. And so what may have seemed to him like meaningless waiting was his training ground for greatness. Victor Raymond Edmond was first a missionary and then later a pastor and finally became president of, of Wheaton College from 1941 to 1965. Billy Graham was a student at Wheaton under his leadership, and later they became good friends. And Victor Raymond Edmond became quite a, a supporter of Billy Graham's ministry. He, he died in a very interesting fashion, actually. Um, he was preaching a chapel message after he had, he had um, uh, retired from president and was now chancellor at Wheaton. He was, he was speaking, he was, he was actually preaching a sermon that was entitled, In the Presence of the King. In the Presence of the King was the name of the sermon. And in the middle of the sermon, he suffered a heart attack and he went immediately into the presence of his king. Not a bad way to go, actually. I'm sure people remembered that, that sermon. Well, in his life, Edmund experienced disappointment and delay in his early ministry. He had been sent to the mission field, learned a language, was excited to be serving as a missionary when he got sick with a tropical illness that meant he had to return to America. And he later wrote, delay never thwarts God's purposes. It only polishes his instrument. He's known for a poem that he wrote that's titled, The Disciplines of Life. I sent this out to you on Friday by email. This is how it goes. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him, and hurts him, and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which God only understands. While his tortured heart is crying, and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses, and with every purpose fuses him, by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we think about this period of time, which as we're just cruising through, it'd be easy for us to just see it as a little parenthesis between stories. But years of this man's life in the pit and yet being taught by you. Lord, help us when we find ourselves unsure and hurting and and waiting on you. Lord, help us to seek you first and to learn the lessons that you would have for us. Lord, we we pray for refinement and discernment. And Lord, I pray for endurance for us all in faith and growth in faith. And 
and, and the boldness that can only come through the refiner's fire. Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who's waiting, who maybe they, they haven't been looking to you, I pray that they would look to you, that they would seek first to you and your kingdom. And Lord, I pray that out of, out of this congregation, Lord, that, that you would raise up many leaders for your kingdom purposes. I pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.